0: We're continuing our study through the life of Jesus, and we're going to find Jesus taking a trip to Jerusalem and working a miracle in the life of a man who's been crippled for 38 years, which is a long time. 38 years. And in this account, for us to really understand what's going on, we need to put ourselves in the place of that crippled man in order to understand why what Jesus does is so incredible. So prepare your minds for that, and let's set the scene. We're going to be in John chapter 5. And we're going to be starting in verse one, John chapter five, verse one. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up. Jerusalem. We don't know what feast it was and just a point of interest, no matter where you're coming from, you are always going up to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was, the center of Jewish worship. It didn't have anything to do with geography. Jerusalem was always up in their minds. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Your Bible might say something a little different. Bethesda having five porches. So the Sheep Gate is where you would enter Jerusalem if you were bringing livestock with you. Something like sheep, for example, to sacrifice at the temple. And close to the sheep gate was a pool. It was a natural pool, kind of a cistern deal that they had built a structure around. And it had five porches, uh, five covered decks, basically. And so there was a covered deck on each of the four sides. And then there was a covered deck that actually stretched across the middle, sort of dividing it into two. And the number five speaks of the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which are generally simply referred to as the law. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. With one of the porches going across the pool, the pool itself looked strikingly similar to the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. So write this down. This is your first fill-in. The Bethesda pool is a picture of the law. It's going to be a picture of the law, literally and figuratively. It's a picture of the law. So there would typically be about 300 people around this pool, sometimes as many as 2,000 during a feast time. So it would have been pretty packed. The pool was about 2 to 3 feet deep, 20 to 30 feet across its longest side, and was primarily used for the cleaning of animals. It would have been a natural pool. We're going to find out, in fact, it was a spring that they had built these structures around Verse three, it says, "In these, so around the pool, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. And so get that visual in in your head because the visual of this pool with all these sick and invalid and crippled, pe- crippled people around it, is a perfect parallel to our own spiritual condition, because God gives us the law, and he says, here's what it takes to be good enough for my standards. If you do these things, you'll thrive. You'll be healthy, you'll be blessed in everything you do, you'll be free, and most importantly, you'll be in right relationship with me. There'll be no separation between us. And so instead of us getting that result, the law revealed one thing, that we are all unable to live up to God's standards, and that we really have no hope outside of a miracle. We're all spiritually sick, we're all sinners. The word Bethesda means house of mercy and even though the law shows us our hopeless situation without Jesus, it's full of God's mercy for the same reason. It shows us just how much we need Jesus. It points us to Jesus. It makes us aware of the reality of our own spiritual condition. No matter what rules and regulations, ordinances and laws are placed upon us, we cannot walk in righteousness or freedom. We can't do it. Many lay by the pool sheltered and covered but not healed. And so too, though religion can shelter people with good values and disciplines and sometimes make you feel a little bit better about yourself, religion can't save you. And now we encounter this verse which is so strange. In fact, some of your Bibles might actually not have a verse 4 in it at all. The reason this is so strange is that this verse doesn't appear in any of the biblical manuscripts before the third century, which is why most Bible scholars believe it was added to the original text as an explanation for a belief that we're going to see coming up. Verse four, if you have it, it says this. It says, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. It's kind of weird. Verse four is an expression of what people believed at that time. It wasn't true, and I'm going to explain to you why. The Greek word for pool is kolombathra, And I love saying Greek words because nobody can ever correct me because nobody knows Greek here. So Columbratha, I just totally nailed that. It's a very precise term and it means a deep pool that from underneath comes bubbling. So it seems that the stirring of the water was basically from the natural spring bubbling up on occasion. And when they saw that, this myth had developed that it was an angel stirring the water. I want to point this out to you because it applies to this story, but it's good to know just for your own theology, your own belief system. There is no evidence anywhere in the Bible ever of an angel being associated with a healing. Ever. Anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere do angels heal people in Scripture. It just doesn't happen. This isn't a biblical solution because this is a, a survival of the fittest type of solution. The first one to get in there gets healed. It encourages a a me first attitude and the idea that putting yourself ahead of others is a way to get healed, which isn't the gospel at all. It's a system that rewards the strong and punishes the weak. And that's just not God. You know, that's what the law, that's what religion, that's what man's regulations always say is be the first, be the best, try harder, fight your way to the top. God helps those who help themselves. And while there's a measure of truth to this idea that God helps those who help themselves, it's not anywhere in the Bible. The essence of the gospel is really God helps those who cannot help themselves. You can go ahead and write that down. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's what we're gonna see today. No Bible scholars really believe that verse four is true. It was a belief at the time. At best, it was superstition or legend. At worst, it was something demonic. And one of the big hints of that is the fact that Jesus is going to go to this pool and he's going to completely ignore the mythology there. If it was something that was from the Lord, he would have acknowledged it in some way. It says this in verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had had an infirmity 38 years. So to put this in context, this man has been sick and lame for 38 years. He has been at this pool for six or seven years longer than Jesus has been alive on the earth. He's been there a long, long time. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus is gonna heal him. Sorry. And I tell you that because I wanna skip ahead for a moment and take a look at verse 14. You're gonna see this in verse 14. It says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. We're going to find that this man is in his condition because of his sin. And that's important because he got himself into this situation, but he's unable to get himself out of this situation. That's on your outline as well. He got himself into this situation, but he's unable to get himself out of this situation. We're gonna deal with that a little bit more when we get there. There's incredible hope for us in this account and this miracle Jesus is gonna work because Jesus is going to be the answer. Jesus is gonna be the only answer. Jesus is going to come to this man when this man doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus is going to come to this man when he has a jacked up theology. The man believes that the answer to all his problems is an angel stirring the waters and being the first in there. That's bad theology, if you're not tracking with me. It's really bad theology. And Jesus is going to come to him while he's in that state. Why? Because everything in the Christian life is a response to what Jesus does for us first. He loved us first. He died for us while we were still sinners. It's the kindness of God leading us to repentance, as the word says. And that's what Jesus is putting on display here. When, When we were in a hopeless situation, unable to help ourselves, Jesus came to us in kindness and he saved us when we couldn't even help ourselves. Verse six, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, you're going to want to underline this question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Other translations will say, do you want to be made whole? It's a profound question. We're gonna spend a lot of time today talking about why. Because at first you may be thinking, of of course he wants to be made well. He's been sick for 38 years. Captain Obvious, Jesus, you can really just skip to the healing. You really don't need to ask this. Do you wanna be made well? But you see, Jesus knows something about people. Jesus knows that not everyone, not everybody wants to get well. Not everyone wants to get well. And you're probably thinking, what, what on earth do you mean, not everyone wants to get well? That's, that's just crazy. But they don't. A- and the reason is, there are serious implications to being made well that this man has to consider. Very serious implications. Let's take a look at some of them. Firstly, if this man is made well, it's going to mean a change in relationships. It's going to mean a change in relationships. He's been with this group of people for 38 years, most of them. They're his friends, at least he thinks they are. They're his stable social circle. He he sees them every day around the pool, and his identity is tied up in this group of people, fellow sick people. If he's healed, it means he's going to have to change some relationships because it's just not going to be the same anymore. It's going to become very obvious very quickly that what unites him With all of these people is the common denominator that they're all sick. And so when he is no longer sick, if he's healed, he's no longer going to have that in common with them. And his relationships are going to have to change. And by the way, this group he's been hanging out with for 38 years, none of them have been able to help him. None of them have been able to make him well. Despite being there 38 years, he can't even find a single friend to help him get into the water. Check out the next verse. Verse seven, it says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. When push comes to shove, all of his friends look out for themselves first. So the question is, if you're healed today, are you prepared to walk away from those relationships? If I make you whole, Are you prepared for your new identity? Are you prepared for having to become someone different? You know, if you live life as a believer for any period of time, you're going to encounter some people who are simply unable to receive the healing God has for them because they're unwilling to walk away from some relationships that have never helped them. They've never helped them. For some of you, you might need to walk away from some relationships in order to receive God's healing. If this man is made well, it's also going to mean a change in activities. Write that down. It's going to mean a change in activities. This man's been a beggar, but he's been a beggar for a long, long time. Right now, he doesn't have to wonder what he's going to do tomorrow. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to wake up, and he's going to go and beg. He's going to go do it in the same place he always does with the same people he always does. And We look on, and we say, well, who wouldn't want to change from that? Who wouldn't want to change from that? You know, in 2012, a, an investigative journalist I- in San Diego investigated just the uh, the phenomenon of if you stop at many traffic lights, there's somebody there at a traffic light. There's always usually one at the at the first street exit when you're going down to Vancouver. There's always someone there with a sign that says, we'll work for food or something like that. And he investigated this. And the journalist found out that, on average, you have a traffic cycle going through every two to three minutes. So you have a new captive audience every two to three minutes. And he found that, most cycles somebody doing that could average two to three dollars per cycle and he said what it works out to is about sixty dollars an hour tax-free some of you right now the wheels are turning and you're like man um i just need to go somewhere for a minute (laughs) anybody got any cardboard you know i might i might do that at christmas for a while you know fake mustache or something But here's the deal. If you've ever worked with the homeless or if you know anyone who has, here's what you know. You will never end homelessness. Never. Never. Because here's the reality. And it's shocking. But if you know anything about this, you'll know I'm telling you the truth. The overwhelming majority of people who are homeless are homeless by choice. Especially in Vancouver. They're homeless by choice. They have some type of uh, a mental illness that prevents them from functioning in society, being able to hold a job. They have some type of crippling addiction that makes it impossible for them to function. Uh, some of them just want to drop out of the rat race. They don't want the stress. They don't want the pressure. We have a social-friendly government that will take care of them to a degree. And for many of them, if you said, hey, h- here you go, I'll, gi- I'll give you a house, but here's the deal. You're going to need to show up at the warehouse house and work nine to five and you're going to need to take care of your home and maintain it, many of them would say, no, no, I'm good. It's the shocking truth that for many of them, it's by choice. It's their willing decision. They want a life where they are uh, accountable to no one, responsible for nothing, no stress, no pressure. I'm not trying to slam homeless people. I'm just trying to tell you the honest truth. And so if this man is healed today, all that has to stop. The begging has to stop he can no longer hold up a sign that says, cripple, please help, God bless you. And it's a safe bet that during these 38 years, this man hasn't really been developing any marketable skills. I'm pretty sure he hasn't been, you know, doing any online courses, you know, just so if the opportunity arrives, I'm ready to be healed. If he's healed, he's going to have to go out and get a job. And if the only job he can find is flipping burgers at McDonald's, That's the job he's going to have to take. So the question for him is, do you want to be healed? Are you willing to do what it takes to be healed? Because it's it's going going to mean a change in activities. You're going to have to take on some responsibility. For this man, the good news is going to be that he is ready. We're going to see that. He really does want to change. But if you're praying for God to heal you, a specific area, you might need to ask if you're prepared to do the things that that healing is going to require of you. You know, in the area of salvation, even Jesus told us, he said, don't respond to the gospel by saying, yeah, of course I want to go to heaven. Sign me up. Jesus told us very clearly, he, he said, listen, no man builds a tower without first considering the cost, without first thinking about what it involves, what goes into it. Jesus said things like count the cost. Don't make a hasty decision. Make sure you understand that if you're following me, you're signing over ownership of your life to me. Your priorities are gonna change. The way you do relationships is going to have to change. The way you prioritize your money is going to have to change. The way you manage your time is going to have to change. The way you handle forgiveness and bitterness is all going to have to change. If you are called to die for me, you're gonna need to do that. So don't ask me to save you unless you're prepared to receive everything that comes along with it. And we know that everything that comes along with it still makes it the most ridiculous deal ever offered in the history of everything. But Jesus was explicit. He said, he said listen, don't delude yourself. There will be things required of you if you're going to make the choice to follow me. If this man is made well, it's going to mean a change in location. It's gonna mean a change in location. If he's made well today, he's going to have to go somewhere else because this place, Bethesda Pool, is for people who are sitting around waiting for something to happen. And if you're made well today, that can no longer be you. You're going to have to make some things happen. Some people miss out on their healing because it's very difficult to leave what's familiar. It's very difficult to leave what's familiar. I was just reading in Exodus the story again of when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Now, now just Keep that word in mind. Slaves, okay? Slaves in Egypt, like whip cracking, working in the sun, slaves in Egypt. God frees them after doing a handful of unbelievable miracles. The first day, while they're on their way out of Egypt, where they were slaves, they're complaining. The first day, the second day, they're complaining. The third day, they're complaining. We're being chased there's no food there's no water and every time they complain you know what they always do they always reference back to egypt they always say you know in egypt we never had to worry about what we were going to eat in egypt we had water in egypt we never had to worry about what was going to happen tomorrow we knew and you read it and you're thinking Yeah, but you were slaves. You knew what you're going to do tomorrow. You're going to wake up. Someone's going to yell at you, hit you with a stick. You're slaves. But we have this weird comfort with the familiar. This weird comfort with the familiar. And some people cannot receive a healing because they just won't leave the familiar. They just won't leave the familiar. You know, people do the same thing when it comes to salvation. Say things like, you know, I used to have a huge circle of friends. I used to have a great income. I used to always have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I used to have places to go. Yeah, but you were a slave. You were crippled. You were sick. God's only asking you to go through a short wilderness time so he can lead you to where you need to be. And sometimes, tragically, those people run back to their familiar chains when things become difficult, the familiar comfort of bondage and slavery. It's a great question Jesus asks when he says, do you want to be made well? If this man's made well, it's going to mean a change in thinking. It's going to mean a change in thinking. You know, there's a certain comfort in being able to tell yourself that you're the victim. When you believe that you've been deeply wronged by your lot in life, it can become a built-in excuse for everything. I can't have a healthy relationship because this. I can't hold a job because this. I can't get up and read my Bible because this. Because this, because this. And I don't mean to say this in a cold way, but I think we all understand the truth of this. We've all seen these videos on YouTube. and, and if you've seen them, they made you cry your eyes out and then you pretend that you got something in your eye if you're a guy. But there, there's always like these videos on YouTube of a person who's blind and is like the best painter in the world, right? Or a person who's got like no arms and legs and, and is like a surfing champion. And there's always these people who, d- who do amazing things despite all these massive handicaps in their life. And as I've paid more and more attention to these, I've started to notice something that shows up in a majority of these stories. You know what it is? It, these people had extraordinary parents. And here's what I mean by extraordinary. They had parents who said, suck it up. You need to figure this out. When their kids said, I, c- I can't dress myself. They said, well, you better figure it out. And you hear the stories and they're heartbreaking because the parent says they would say that and then walk around the corner and cry their eyes out because it hurt them so much to do that to their kid. But those parents understood this principle. They understood that the one thing they could not let their child grow up with was a victim mentality. They could not let their child grow up allowing themselves to use their disability, their handicap, as an excuse for accomplishing nothing in life. These parents had just determined, my kid is going to accomplish absolutely everything possible for them. And it's incredibly painful for the parents to do that. But these parents love their kids enough to understand the danger of a victim mentality. Because you see, a victim mentality, it doesn't just rob you in the one area where you were wronged. Or the one area where you got a bad deal. A victim mentality will steal everything from you. It will steal all potential joy. It will steal potential peace. It will steal opportunity. It will steal everything from you. Steal everything from you, relationships. And this man has to decide if he's ready to let go of his victim mentality. Because if he's healed, if he's healed, he's not the cripple guy that you have to feel sorry for anymore. He's not that man anymore if he's going to be made whole. And so he has to decide if he's ready for that. In verse 7, he says to Jesus, I have no man to put me into the pool. You see, he believes that he just needs to meet that right person. That's his answer. He needs that person he can count on and depend on and trust. And if he can find that person, that right relationship, then it's going to bring him the answer he's looking for. It's going to make him whole. It's going to bring him healing. Have you ever met somebody like that who believes that they are one right relationship away from being made whole, all their problems being solved? And many times that person goes from relationship to relationship to relationship because they're trying to find their answer. And they're trying to find their answer in a place that they're never going to find it. By the way, side note on relationships, that's way too much pressure for any other human being to live up to. Way too much pressure. I mean, if you saw that on a match.com profile, right? Looking for a person to make me whole. You need to run away from that because that person is telling you It's going to be your responsibility to fulfill me in every single way in life. If I'm sad, your fault. Fulfill me. Make me happy. Make my life meaningful. Nobody can do that. That's God stuff. That's Jesus stuff. And this man is going to have to come to terms with the fact that there's not a person who can solve his problem. He's going to have to change his thinking. And some people... Never receive the miracle they need, the miracle they say they want, because they refuse to change their thinking. They refuse to change their thinking. Maybe being the victim becomes your entire identity. It's who you are. You don't even know how to think of yourself as anything else. You don't even know what you would do if you were fully functional. Don't miss out on your miracle because you refuse to change your thinking. If this man's going to be made well, it's going to mean a change in theology write that down. A change in theology. You see, he believes that his healing is going to come from an angel, but it can really only come from Jesus. He believes he's the victim of circumstance. In his case, he's really the victim of his own sin. He believes he needs physical healing most of all, but really he needs forgiveness most of all. Many people, I would venture to say the majority of people who hold any type of faith or any type of religious belief uh, live on what's called borrowed beliefs borrowed beliefs and this happens when all your ideas and beliefs are based on things that other people say other people have told you usually the religious group that you're a part of so basically your whole belief system is based on things that other people tell you about your religion about your faith they're not things that you have learned for yourself about your faith and that's how most people live bumper sticker faith you can call it sometimes you call it a a cultural faith or a cultural religion and you see this because there there are religions and faiths. Christianity is no different, where people do things and believe things that run completely contradictory to the teachings of that religion. And the reason that that's able to happen is because nobody is actually reading what that religion actually says and what that religion actually believes. Nobody's actually reading it so they can get away with it. There have been times in, in the history of Christianity in different places when this was intentional, when uh, the leaders in power said listen we got to stop people from reading their bibles because if they read their bibles they're going to understand that what we're asking them to do is not in the bible anywhere that's what the reformation is essentially all about is hey we, we, we've we got a system of christianity that, that has nothing to do with christianity but that's how most people live and uh, as you grow in your walk with the Lord and you begin to understand God more and more, it's, it's a great thing, but there's two risks you need to be aware of as you begin growing in your own relationship with the Lord, as you begin reading the Bible for yourself. There's two things that can happen when you stop getting your, all your information secondhand. Firstly, you may have to change your <laughs> denominational affiliation. You know, I, I, I grew up in a church that was, I don't know how to describe it other than hyper-Pentecostal. I saw my pastor's wife stage dive into the arms of the elders, um, which is quite a claim to be able to make. But I saw a lot of things. And even when I was 10 and 11, I was thinking, this is really weird. And as I began to read my Bible and learn things for myself, I, I learned some things that made me realize I, I can't go back to that because I've grown in my understanding of God through his word. And I understand that that's no longer true. That was my, my whole upbringing. I, I knew that world. I knew the rules of that world. I knew how it worked. But I had to decide if I was going to continue to live on borrowed beliefs or form my own beliefs based on what the Word of God says. And you might have to do that at some point in your life as you learn the truth of God's Word. The second thing is you're going to risk being misunderstood. You're going to risk being misunderstood because some people don't want to leave their borrowed beliefs. They like their borrowed beliefs. And so when this man is healed, we're going to see not everyone's going to celebrate with him. You'll find in your own life that when God dramatically heals you, there's always going to be some people who are going to come, come along and say, well, you, you need to calm down. just need to calm down. Come back here to our borrowed beliefs, to our, to our neat little system, and just get back in your place and stop being so rowdy. You know, pe- people are generally like thermostats. You know how thermostats work. You set it, and if it, if it goes... Two degrees too high, and you've got an air conditioner. Suddenly, everything kicks in, and goes to work, bringing everything back to homeostasis—that the temperature that the thermostat is set at. And when you have cultures that have this borrowed belief happening, this happens in families, this happens in churches, this happens in denominations, it happens in workplaces, it happens in social circles, circles of friends. Sometimes you have a group that's centered around these borrowed beliefs. And maybe you start becoming passionate for the Lord. You start becoming zealous. You start learning some things, some truths. You go up two degrees, and it's like everything kicks in, and suddenly everyone comes in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just bring you back down here to the norm. Let's just bring you back down here to the norm. Just conform to what we think is normal and calm down. Happens all the time, and this man has to decide if he's ready for that. If he's going to be healed, there's going to be some people coming along saying like, whoa, 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 you're, you're Steve the beggar. Come on, man, just stop being weird. That's going to happen, and he has to decide if he's going to listen to the one who's going to heal him or the religious system that hasn't been able to help him in 38 years. Many people will miss out on a miracle from God because they can't let go of the approval of significant people in their life see this all the time maybe you have parents maybe you have relatives maybe you have family or just people you've really respected maybe at some point we're spiritual mentors to you but you've learned some truths there are some people who would rather continue to live on borrowed beliefs than say "Ah, I found the truth and I can't go back And they're unwilling to deal with the reality that that relationship may be the cost of that. It means too much to them. They miss out on a miracle. We're gonna go back to the text and in the middle of this scene where people are gathered in an atmosphere of competition to try and find healing by being the fastest and the first, Jesus comes to the one who's in the back, furthest out of the way, the least competitive of them all, the one who couldn't help himself. In verse eight, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. He couldn't walk without a miracle. You know, you or I cannot overcome our sin without a miracle from God. The Bible actually says we we can't even become aware of the fact that we have a sin problem without God. Literally. The picture isn't that, that we're in a dark pit calling for a rope and Jesus throws down a rope. Jesus says, You don't even know you're in the pit until I allow you to understand that you're in the pit. You are helpless when Jesus comes to you. The layman is not going to be delivered by a man to help him, as he said he needed. He's going to be delivered by the Son of Man who helped him. Jesus gives the man a very firm and specific instruction when he says to him, Rise. Take up your bed and walk. He's telling this man what to do next. He's telling him how to walk out his healing. And here's what you need to know. Write this down. Two things here. Jesus always gives us the ability to do what he asks. He always gives us the ability to do what he asks. But healing will require acting upon what he says. Healing will require acting upon what he says. There's a lot of these cases where I would speculate that when Jesus says, rise, take up your mat and walk, the moment the man is healed is the moment the man makes the decision to actually rise and he starts trying to get up. It's going to require acting upon the words of the Lord if you're going to be healed. You know, some people want a relational miracle, but they are unwilling to do relationships God's way. Unwilling. Some people want a financial miracle, but they're unwilling to do finances God's way. In every area of our lives, the Bible speaks to how we are to live. If we desire a miracle, we have to start by following what the Word of God says about how we are to live in that area of our lives. It's amazing where we will say, I just don't know what to do, or I really want this. And the first step is always, have you done what the Bible says in that area? No, I'm kind of looking for a second opinion. Jesus doesn't give second opinions ever. He says, I, I meant what I said the first time. Go do that. That's your first step. Then we'll talk after that. Notice that Jesus has a two-step post-miracle plan of action for this man. Firstly, he says, take up your bed. Write this down. Jesus is saying, don't plan for failure. Don't plan for failure. Don't say, I- I'm going to leave my bed here on the deck just in case this thing doesn't work out for me. You know, if you've been in bondage to something that seems to have a grip on your life, God is saying to you today, take up your bed. Don't make provision for failure. Don't prepare for failure. Don't self-sabotage. We do this all the time. I do this all the time. Don't leave accountability software off that one computer. Don't keep that bottle of wine in the back if you have a problem with alcohol just for the day you want one or two sips or three or four or five or six. Don't keep his phone number just in case nobody calls you for the next three weeks. Don't plan for failure. Secondly, Jesus says, walk. Write this down. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Let me share with you a hard truth. No one will carry you. No one will carry you. Jesus will carry you. But when are we gonna learn this as believers that, like the the lame man even after we're healed, we still think we need a man. We still think we need a person. We need the right counselor, the, the the right therapist. Or where's the person to disciple me? Where's the person to pray with me, to study with me? I need a person. The layman had a choice to make. He could either obey the word of Christ, or he could argue that it wouldn't work for him. This won't work for me. It's just just not how I'm made. And we have the same choice. You know, Kari Ten Boom was right. She said, you'll never discover that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Jesus is more with you and me than he was even with that crippled man. We have his spirit with us all the time. We have his word. All we have to do is open it and read it, and there are the words of Jesus directly to us, directly to us, personally and specifically. But too often, we, we don't read the word. We don't crack it open. We're too busy saying, Who, who's gonna help me? What program can I sign up for? What, what pastor's gonna solve this problem for me? We'll, we'll drive 50 minutes to go to a 30-minute counseling appointment rather than spend 15 minutes in the word, right? I need a man to help me. God has said clearly, it's, it's right there in Psalm 1, the one who's meditating on the word of God will bring forth fruit, will never shrivel up, will prosper in all he does. Whatever you do, don't fall into the trap of thinking that there's a person who's the key to you being helped. Get back in the Word. Seek God. You know, the the church grew for almost 2,000 years without any type of Christian therapist. 2,000 years. Pretty lucky, I guess, right? You want to talk about stress. This is stress. Why does the congregation look smaller today? Because some of them were fed to lions this week. That's stress. That's stress. And all they had to hold on to was the word of God, the fellowship of believers, prayer, worship. That's it. They didn't even have anybody who had been through a a counseling program or understood grief. They didn't have have any of that. All they had was God's word, God's spirit, God's people. And, And they made it and they made it, and the church thrived, and the church grew. You know, the same is true in China today, and I'm not, I'm not trying to come down and saying there's not a place for Christian counseling, but I'm I'm just telling you that in China right now, where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere else in the world, they face more persecution than we can imagine. They face more stress than we can imagine. I read an article this week. This church came together Raise tons of money, gospels thriving in this one city. They're able to build a church building that can hold thousands of people. They get a governor in there who doesn't like Christians. He decides that he wants to knock down the church. So the Christians are forming a human shield around their church 24 hours a day. That's what they're doing at church today in China. And they don't have a single person who's trained in counseling or verbal encouragement and affirmation and things like that. They, ju- they just have God. They just have a spirit and his word, and they say things like, I read one old woman, she said, uh, take my life, but leave the church. She says, I'll be fine, I'll be with Jesus. That, that, that's their attitude. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough, you know. So how did this work? How, how for centuries did the church survive without all, all the programs that we claim are, are desperately needed today? All the things that are necessary for a church, we think. I'll tell you what happened: is the word of God was taught. They would ask people to respond, and people were convicted. And they would, they would kneel at the front. They would kneel in their seat. They'd weep before the Lord. They would repent for their sin, and they would go home rejoicing. They'd go home free. Today we hear a Bible study, then we go home. We fire up the grill and watch the game on TV, and we remain troubled inside. Four days later, we call a counselor, and then we wonder why we're we're not really helped at all because we forgot how to do business with God. You know, I need Jesus, and you need Jesus. Don't expect somebody else to seek him for you. One of the greatest truths I can share with you I've learned again and again, nobody will seek God for me. Nobody can seek God for me. Only I can seek God for myself. You seek him. You get in the word. You pray. You repent. Verse 10, it says, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Just to note, when John uses the phrase the Jews, he's he's always talking about the Jewish leadership. He's not talking about all of the Jews. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. The idea is he's saying, I'm carrying my bed because the guy who healed me told me to. I'm going to do what he says because you had 38 years and you couldn't do jack for me. Okay, see you later. Then they asked him, who's this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn. A multitude being in that place. So the idea is this man stands up when Jesus says it. Everyone starts turning around, and there might be a couple of thousand people in there, and they're going crazy, and Jesus just sort of backs out through the crowd. He's not prepared to deal with that whole scene right at this moment. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. I love that this man's response to being healed is just to find his way to the place of worship. He just feels compelled to be there. Something in him understands this is just where he needs to be. You know, uh, quite frankly, it's always hard for me to hear from from people who say, you know, I just don't feel the Lord. I just don't, don't sense him. And I haven't seen him in church for a long time. Haven't seen him take a moment to take communion. Dig into their life a little bit and it's like, well, I haven't really been in the word. I haven't really been praying. I mean, You're basically saying, I can't find God when you haven't been doing anything to look for him. It's like, yeah, of of course, you know? No, 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 that's that's not it, it's none of those things. God's hiding from me, you know? (laughs) Sounds like you're hiding from God. God's never the one who's failing us, ever, ever. Be honest with yourself. Jesus is clearly implying that this man's problem was the result of previous sin. You know, sickness and sin sometimes go together, but not always, not always. But in this case, they did. Most Bible scholars believe this man had contracted some type of STD that had ravaged his body. Jesus's point to this man is this you can write this down when you've been healed, never go back to sin. When you've been healed, never go back to sin. Do whatever you need to do to break that cycle. When you've been set free, don't go back to your chains. One of the most vivid descriptions ever, the Bible says the man returning to his sin is like a dog returning to its vomit. It's a good picture to keep in mind when you're tempted. It's a really good picture. It's helped me before. Don't want to be a dog going back to my vomit. This man's answer was not a person. It wasn't the religious leadership. It wasn't his great faith or his perfect theology. His answer and the only one who can help him was Jesus. It was Jesus, Jesus. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He's not tattling on Jesus, he's bragging. He's saying, Jesus did this for me. Verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. This is the moment when the Jewish leadership begins to truly hate Jesus. They hate this man because he's breaking their laws while perfectly explaining how he's not breaking God's laws. See, they had added all this extra stuff and Jesus had no respect for all the stuff that they had added, but he perfectly abided by the laws of the Father. And this drove them crazy because Jesus was undermining their authority and they couldn't even trap him in it. Drove them crazy. And from this moment on, they begin plotting his murder. Two years later, they succeed. Two years later, they succeed. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to ask a few questions while we're here. The big one I just want to ask you is, is if there is a healing you're praying for, if it's physical, emotional, relational, whatever it is, I want to ask if you're prepared for everything that's going to mean. Are you prepared to let go of a victim mentality if that's where you are right now? Are you prepared for a new location? Are you prepared for new relationships? Are you prepared for all those things? Uh, and I just, I just sense and I just believe that maybe there's some of us here today who are very aware that we're not yet at the place where we're willing to do those things. And maybe your prayer today isn't, God, heal me. Maybe your prayer today needs to be, God, help me to get ready for a healing. Help me to get ready. Build in me the desire, the resolve, whatever it takes. New activities. Letting go of things I need to let go of. Because if that's you, and you're praying for healing in an area the question Jesus is asking you is, is do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? Only you know what that means in, in your life. And If everything is good in your life, if everything's right right now, my prayer for you and for me today is that you would just be moved by the reminder that Jesus came to you and I when we could not help ourselves. And he lifted us up and he healed us. And he made us whole. And one day he's going to finish that work completely, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's all going to be complete. But Maybe for you today, you, you just need to take communion and, and thank the Lord for what he's done for you that he came to you when your theology wasn't perfect, when you didn't really even understand who he was. He came to you. He came for you and revealed himself to you. That is worth being thankful for. You take a minute, just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, maybe illuminate some things that he wants to show you, areas where you might need to change where you might need to ask God to do a work, to do a miracle in your life.